The following sermon is from Faith Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Join us on Sundays for our 8.15 and 11 a.m. worship services. For more information, visit us online at faith-pca.org. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to grab it, open it up. We're going to be walking through this passage this morning, Mark chapter 14. It's printed in your bulletin, verses 43 through 65. So we're still in the last week of Jesus' life, however, so it's Holy Week. And, but now it is early on Friday morning. Last week, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, He's still in the Garden of Gethsemane at the beginning of this passage this morning. However, now Jesus moves from agony and grief and distress. You remember last week, he moves from those things to being all alone in the dark. It's the darkest part of the night. This is likely taking place between midnight and 2 a.m. on Friday morning. And the physical darkness that is pictured here uh, is a glimpse of the spiritual darkness that is about to take place. Judas has arrived, and the hour has come for the Son of Man to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. That's where our passage picks up this morning. Follow along with me. This is the Word of God starting in verse 43 of chapter 14. And immediately when he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, And he kissed him, and they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled." But they all left him and fled. And then this random verse, which we'll talk about in a minute. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree." And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in in their midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? 
What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? In the decision, they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophecy. And the guards received him with blows. This is the word of God. Let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us. Pray with me. Father, we do ask you to come. We come from lots of places this morning. Some of us are bored. Some of us um, are thinking about thousands of things that we have to do this week. Some of us are distracted. Some of us are in pain. Some of us are encouraged. We're, We're coming from everywhere. And I pray that you would move all of our distractions out of our hearts and minds in the next few moments so that we can see you clearly. Holy Spirit, come and work. I cannot do that. Come and do what I cannot do. Apply this word to each and every heart. May we leave here challenged, encouraged, convicted, all the above. I pray that you would do through the power of your spirit, through the preaching of the word. And we ask that you would do these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Lots of things that we need to cover this morning. It's quite a lengthy passage, so we're actually going to jump right in. Keep your Bibles open. We're simply just going to work through the Scripture, and we're going to make some application along the way. Let me remind you again this morning as we dig into these passages, um, not only today but in in the weeks to come, uh, these passages have been used to shame you into obedience. Look at all the things Jesus is going, for, going through for you. Now get with the program and be more obedient. That's not the point of these passages. The focus of these passages, and on the coming weeks, and it was on last week, is on what Jesus has done for you. Jesus is taking our place. And so I want you to see Jesus more than anything else. And by the grace of God, that's what we will see this morning. So let's look at this passage under three headings. The arrest of Jesus, number one. The trial of Jesus, secondly. And then lastly, we'll look at the claims of Jesus. The arrest, the trial, and the claims. Let's jump in with our first heading, the arrest of Jesus. And what I want us to do as we work through verses 43 through 53 is I want you to notice the different things that Jesus is experiencing here as he's being arrested. And the first one is notice that Jesus is betrayed. Look at verse 43. He's still speaking to the disciples in the garden, and Judas comes, and notice Mark says here, one of the twelve. He said that before in chapter 14. Why does Mark keep saying he is one of the 12? Mark is driving home for us and wants us to see that this is not a random stranger on the street that is betraying Jesus. This is someone close to Jesus. It's one of his friends and someone who was one of the the disciples and had been with Jesus for a long time. 
And Judas comes bringing a band of armed men that were sent from the Sanhedrin. The priest, the scribes, and the elders combined to make up what is known as the Sanhedrin. Verse 44 through 47. Remember, it is the darkest part of the night. They had no electricity. Sure, they had torches. But it was still hard to see clearly and to make out people's faces. And so that's why you have the kiss, the prearranged signal from Judas. And Judas says, the one that I kiss, that is the one that you are to arrest. Stop and imagine the betrayal of Jesus and what he experienced in this moment. A symbol of affection was being used as a symbol of betrayal. Some of you know what that's like. Some of you in the room this morning, you know this kind of pain where someone has pledged their loyalty and their love for you and yet they abandoned you and they betrayed you. Betrayal is always horrible, but when it comes with a kiss... When it comes with a kiss from a spouse or from a friend, it's especially horrible. Jesus knows that kind of betrayal. And yet, I want you to notice his grace for betrayers is stunning, isn't it? In Matthew's account of this scene, in Matthew chapter 26, it says that Judas greets Jesus with a kiss and calls him rabbi, and then Jesus replies, do what you came for, friend. He calls Judas friend. Not, I know why you're coming, get away from me, you're a sellout and you're a betrayer, I want nothing to do with you. Friend. Because that's who Jesus is, isn't it? The friend of sinners. And so even in this moment, Jesus is being gracious and loving and moving towards his betrayer. Jesus is betrayed. He's also misunderstood. Look at verse 47 through 48. The armed guards show up. One standing near draws a sword, cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest, and then Jesus says, what are you doing? That's the tone. Why are you coming at me like I'm a criminal with clubs and swords to capture me. You've seen me. You know me. You did nothing when I was teaching in the temple. And then notice, this needs to be pointed out, but notice the obedience. All of this is happening just as God said it would, right on schedule. Because at the end, he says, the scriptures must be fulfilled. Four times we see it. Look, verse 44, 46, 49, and 51, you see a word repeated, and it's the word seized. And that is obviously intentional, and it's meant to emphasize the force of the arrest. Likely, Judas was coming with armed guards because he had told them that they should expect a fight. That they need to buckle up 
Because there is going to be violent resistance. And Jesus is, in a sense, saying, if you come at me with swords because you think I'm going to come at you with a sword and retaliate, Judas, you have no idea who I am. Judas had been with Jesus for years, and he still did not understand the nature of the kingdom of God. Judas had still thought that the bigger the sword... The bigger the club, the more likely you are to win. And Jesus says, I'm not about the club and the sword at all. And we learn something here. Don't think if you've walked with Jesus for many years, been there, done that, I got this. We don't have anything. We need to always remain humble before the Scriptures and be teachable before Jesus particularly when it comes to understanding him and his kingdom. But notice, Judas is not the only one who misunderstands. One standing nearby who John tells us it's most likely Peter, tells us it's Peter, cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And so when push comes to shove, Peter too, his instinct was to fight and to bring out the sword. Jesus says to all of us this morning, My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is a different kingdom. I will change the world by putting others above myself. I will love my enemies and I will forgive my enemies. Jesus says I will bring change by service and sacrifice, not by repaying evil for evil and powering up on people. Jesus says my kingdom is about overcoming evil with good and about giving up power. You see, the kingdom of God is about weakness and suffering and rejection. It's not about powering up and about the sword. Have you this morning felt misunderstood? Jesus is misunderstood. You ever felt misunderstood? Jesus knows what that's like. He also knows what it's like to be abandoned. Look at verse 50. Then everyone fled. Notice the totality of that verse. All. And it's a word that we've seen used throughout chapter 14. Verse 23. All drank from the cup of the Passover. Verse 31. All of the disciples said what? We're loyal. We won't leave you, Jesus. We're with you to the end. And then verse 50. All left him and fled. Verse 51. Notice we learn about a particular young man that flees naked. That seems like a troubling and strange footnote. The church has largely attributed this this young man to be the writer of the gospel, Mark himself. Mark writing himself into the story as if to say, everyone ran away, but I'm just as bad as them because I ran away too when Jesus needed me the most. You see, nakedness in the Scriptures is a picture of shame. And Mark is willing to undergo shame and run away naked to avoid being with Jesus Everyone to the last person failed Jesus. He is utterly alone and it's shameful. 
And do not miss, I like to point this out, do not always point this out when we have the opportunity, do not miss that these are followers of Jesus. Close followers of Jesus. People that saw Jesus do amazing things, they are the ones that are betraying him, misunderstanding, and abandoning abandoning Jesus. Why do I point that out? Because I heard it just two weeks ago. I don't come to church anymore because those Christians, you know this, are nothing but what? A bunch of hypocrites. And you know what I say? You're right, and it's worse than that. It's worse. Look at this. We betray, we abandon, we misunderstand Jesus all of the time. And here's what I say, and what I want to always say to us, that's the point. That's the entire point of Christianity. It's the entire reason that Jesus came into this world. It's the entire reason that Jesus is doing everything in this passage because we are sinners desperately in need of His grace and we desperately need a Savior to rescue us. Maybe this morning you're disappointed or you're even shocked at another person in the church or a person in your workplace or school who claims to be a Christian. Don't give up on them. Jesus does not give up on you. Jesus will never, ever give up on his church. The question then becomes, why does this scene matter? Why does this arrest of Jesus matter? Believe it or not, as gut-wrenching as this scene is, all of the betrayal and misunderstanding, there is actually hope here for us. And the hope is in the connection between the two gardens. I brought this out last week. We see it again this morning. Commentators make the connection between this garden and the Garden of Eden. Hang with me. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were given a test. How'd they do? They failed the test. And what happens after they failed the test? They were exposed, and they too ran away naked and tried to cover up. They were eventually kicked out of the garden. And remember in Genesis 3.24, there's a flaming sword and an angel guarding the tree of life in the garden. It's a picture that our sin has separated us from God, and there's no way back to the presence of God unless someone stands under the sword, the flaming sword of divine justice. And now centuries later, we're in another garden, and there's another test And everyone is failing Jesus in one way or another, and they're waving their swords, and they too are fleeing naked in their shame, although now there is a difference, isn't there? What's the difference? We've got someone passing the test. Jesus is passing the test, and he remains obedient And he stands firm and he fulfills the scripture. And in this garden, Jesus is looking down the sword of divine justice, unlike Adam and Eve. Jesus passes the test and pays the penalty on Good Friday for the sin that we deserve and the punishment that we deserve. So that now, you and I, through faith in Christ, we get presence of God back. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's the beauty of Jesus. Cowards and betrayers and deserters like us have hope in this garden. 
because Jesus doesn't run, but he takes the sword of justice and he takes our place. Secondly, the trial of Jesus. Verse 52. So the guards lead Jesus to the home of the high priest, and there is a trial. Again, all those chief priests, elders, um, that makes up the Sanhedrin. And so Jesus is on trial. And what I hope to show you is this is a complete joke, what Jesus is having to go through here. The Sanhedrin is actually violating their own laws and their own rules in order to put Jesus to death. By this point, it's 3 a.m. in the morning, and the law said that you were not allowed to have a capital trial in the middle of the night. You had to have it in the daylight. This is in the middle of the night under the radar. The law also said the trial needed to take place in the temple courts. Where is this trial taking place? In the backyard of the high priest. This trial is not occurring. It was not to occur. Trials were not to occur in a great festival. Remember, it is Passover. The point is this is wrong. And it is unjust from the get-go. Look at verse 55. It was clear that they decided, look at that verse, had decided on a verdict before the trial even began. They're seeking testimony and evidence for the death penalty, and notice over and over over the refrain, they found none. Verses 56 through 59, many bore false witness against Jesus, but their testimony did not agree. Witnesses were required to agree in a trial in order for the trial to move forward. We don't have that here. There's no agreement. This trial should have never moved forward. And then you have a false charge made by one of the false witnesses, They stand up and say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands, and then look at it. Yet even after this testimony, there is no agreement. And what they were saying was not true. Remember John chapter 2? The Jews had misunderstood. They thought Jesus was speaking about Herod's temple. Jesus was speaking about his own body. False testimony... False witnesses, it's a joke. And none of it matches up. They're violating their own rules according to Deuteronomy chapter 19. The entire process should have been ruled a mistrial. Or if you were in a presbytery meeting, someone should have stood up and said, Out of order! (laughs) We won't have that here. Have you ever been canceled? Have you ever been mistreated? Have you ever been a victim of injustice or treated unfairly? You have a Savior in Jesus who knows exactly what that is like. And He is with you. And then in verses 60 through 61, look, the high priest asked Jesus to answer the charges. He says nothing. Why does Jesus say nothing and remain silent? Why doesn't he respond? Well, he refuses to take part in this mess. Because there's nothing, uh, there's no genuine charge that's been made against him. And so he doesn't respond because he doesn't see the need to respond. He is silent. And I think, as I was studying this, think about this, how stunning is the silence? What would you have done if you were in this trial? 
Wait! Please, you're, you don't understand. These are lies. These are false charges. We would have been angry and frustrated by what was happening right before us. Somebody help! And Jesus says nothing. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb being led to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, and he does not open his mouth. There's no defense. There was someone that should have defended him and given opportunity to make a case for Jesus. That did not happen. The trial was supposed to last two days, and there was not a, you were not allowed to make a judgment on the same day. And within minutes, they sentenced Jesus to death. Do you see how unjust this all is? Verses 64 through 65, they just sentence him to death, and they begin to spit on him and beat him. Same question, so what? Why does this trial matter? Why is it so important for us? It matters because did you know that the entire plan of salvation actually depends on this scene? The entire plan of salvation actually depends on this scene. How so? Well, think about what's happening here. Jesus is bearing the judicial sentence that we deserve for our sin. Isn't that the gospel? Jesus is declared condemned and guilty and worthy of death so that you who are in Christ are fully acquitted, declared not guilty before God. Friends, the verdict is in on you. And it's a favorable verdict. To put it another way, Jesus, the one who is totally innocent, is declared guilty so that you and I, who are completely guilty, 100%, might be declared innocent. And you say, well, okay, but that's good. I love that. But how does that actually apply to my life this morning, or as we like to say on Tuesday afternoon? Let me make a very personal application. Uh, there's lots of things we could say. Let me make an application for your heart this morning. If you're anything like me, you live a lot of your life in a courtroom. Anybody ever feel like they're on trial? You ever live as if you're on the witness stand being scrutinized and we are the judge and who are we judging? Ourselves. Anybody else judge themselves? Anybody else have an inner critic? that has a list that goes through your mind constantly that's scrolling through on repeat that reminds you of all the horrible things that you've done and the ways that you've failed and the ways that you are a failure in the moment. Why? Because of our sin, we know we don't live up to the, stand, to the standard. We know we don't live up to God's standard. We don't even live up to our own standards. And so we walk around feeling unworthy, unacceptable, having to prove ourselves that we are lovable and valuable. And that's why we go out into this world and we try to suck life out of anything and everything and any person that will give it to us. Because we're looking for a favorable verdict. We're looking for someone to look at us and say, you're okay. 
I love you. You're valuable. You're important to me. You're beautiful. And the gospel, and this is what I want you to see, applies to that. To that moment. To your inner critic. Because the gospel comes into the courtroom of your heart. And Jesus says, I'm their representative. I'm their lawyer. And Jesus makes a case for us. And his case is I died on a cross and I paid the debt for sin. Jesus declared guilty so that we can be declared innocent. Jesus says before the Father, I paid this debt. Those things scrolling through your mind, I paid that debt. And so I want full acquittal. Because it's unjust of you to make two payments for the same debt. I'm asking for justice. Friends, that's an indestructible case. Because of Jesus and what he's done here, the verdict is in on you. And in the eyes of the only court that really matters, God looks at you and says, I love you. You're mine. You're okay. You're acceptable and you are valuable. And so here's what this means. Jesus received the judicial sentence that you deserve. And so you and I can stop judging ourselves. We can tell the inner critic, be quiet. Jesus is my representative. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. Lastly and quickly, verses 61 through 62, the claims of Jesus. So Jesus doesn't answer. The high priest says, oh, you're going to answer. And he says, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And then Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. Throughout Mark, you might remember this in the Gospels, Jesus would heal somebody and he would say, don't tell anybody. Don't let my identity be known. Remember that? And it all is coming uh, to a head here where Jesus is revealing who he is. And he says very clearly, he makes two astonishing claims. One, he says, I am, which basically means I am God with skin on. I am God in the flesh. So he's saying, I'm God. Secondly, he says, I'm the son of man. And that is actually what did it for Jesus. When Jesus says, I'm the son of man, they go berserk. Because Jesus in that verse actually connects Psalm 110 and Daniel chapter 7. Those were scriptures that they would have known and that they loved. And Jesus brings them together. Psalm 10, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies a footstool. Then Daniel 7, listen to this. Daniel sees a vision of one like the Son of Man coming from the, uh, on the clouds of heaven. He approaches the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And then listen to this. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power over all the world, nations, and men, and languages. And then it says, His dominion is an everlasting dominion and will not pass away, and his kingdom will never be destroyed. How do you think that went over? The Sanhedrin, do you see it? They are judging Jesus, and yet Jesus is saying, 
I'm the king of the world. And I'm the judge of the world. He could have used any image. And he uses here very intentionally the image of a judge. Why? Because Jesus is forcing them to see the paradox. That the judge over the entire world is actually being judged by the world. Jesus should have been the one in the judgment seat, and he will be when he comes again. They should have been the ones on trial. Everything in this passage is upside down. And when Jesus makes these claims, they explode. They completely come apart and start tearing their garments, and they call it blasphemy. And this trial moves from a trial to an all-out riot and all-out chaos and into a beatdown on Jesus. I'll close with this. You might have heard of Banksy, the most famous street artist in the world. A couple of years ago, he was in New York City. You might have, again, heard the article about this. He was doing an experiment, and he set up a booth in Central Park, and he was selling his original artwork with his original signature, and he was selling it for $60. And the BBC reported that these canvases were valued at between thirty-two dollars and $50,000 a piece. He was selling them for $60, and by midday he had only managed to sell one. See what's happening? People standing in front of the most valuable artwork they would ever encounter, and they didn't even notice. They completely missed it. That's exactly what we see in this last scene, in this passage. Jesus is standing before the Sanhedrin and before the religious leaders and saying, I am God with skin on. God in the flesh, I'm the great judge, I'm the king over all of the earth. And they completely miss him. Jesus is standing before us this morning through the preaching of his word and through this table. And the question before all of us this morning is how will we respond? Will we, like the Sanhedrin, will we miss Jesus? Or will we encounter him and fall down on our face and worship because he is God in the flesh, the son of man who is coming in the clouds and he will judge the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for standing in our place. Thank you for taking the judgment and the penalty that we deserve I pray that you would drive that into our hearts in a way that would change us and lead us to worship this morning. Forgive us for our um, betrayal of you and the ways that we leave you. Holy Spirit, help us this morning to see Jesus more clearly. There's someone here that doesn't know you. I pray that you would give them faith that you would remove the blinders from their eyes so that they can see you for who you really are. Would you do this in Jesus' name? Amen.